presentation. Um, so I just thought we'd, we'd start by, by reading some sources, and I'm going to be looking at my watch periodically just to figure out where we are, and I don't know how long this takes. So we'll see. Um, and a lot of these sources will be familiar, but I hope that they'll seem at least a little bit fresh if we look at them just saying, what do these sources have to say about what humans are, what animals are, how they relate. Um, so start with, start with the first source on page one. Someone mind reading, and we'll, we'll just read in English. And God created man in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fertile and increase, fill the earth and master it, and rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and all the living things that creep on earth. God said, See, I give you every seed-bearing plant that is upon all the earth, and every tree that has seed-bearing fruit, they shall be yours for fruit. Thanks. Um, so, what do we learn about humans and animals from the source. What do we learn about humans' place in creation and their relationship to animals? They have like a mastery relationship of some sort. Okay, great. So they definitely have this relationship of mastery. Humans are the master of animals. That seems clear. Um, and you can't eat them. And you can't eat them. Um, and so that's, and that's thing number two, right? And that's a little bit more of a subtle point, but it's an important point is that humans are the lords of animals, but humans are not allowed to eat animals. And even though it's not explained in the language of prohibition in verse 29, it's explained as this is what you can eat, and what you can eat is not animals. What, yeah. what about the, uh, the qualification regarding animals that we're talking about animals that creep? Yeah, I mean, I think for the purposes of, right, meaning I think those are the three categories of animals in the way that this creation story in Genesis 1 conceives of animals, right? This Genesis 1 is this very structured creation story, and it's very interested in categorization. And the way that it talks about animals isn't through this abstract category of animals, but the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the living things that creep on the earth, meaning by where the animals are divided by where they live. Yeah, Sam. Um, I mean, one thing that jumps out is that humans look like God and animals don't. Right. Yeah, so I think those are, and good. And, and so God talks to us and not to the animals. And God, and God talks to us and not to the animals. Yes, okay. So I think those are the points that I, those are, very quickly, those are all the points that I wanted to draw of the source, master relationship, and humans' mastery over animals, and humans being at the top of this hierarchy of animals is related to this idea that humans are created in the image of God, which I think as Sam says, means they look like God, um, physically. Um, and also, but this relationship, as Rabbi Diamond says, um, does not mean, mean that you can eat them. You can't. Um, How do you know God doesn't talk to animals? Well, we don't know, absolutely, but just here God is talking to humans, I think. Is that, is that fair? God turn to the animals and say, and listen to the people. How do you know that? It's not in the Torah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think you could say that. Right, we don't. It, it never, it never says that. It seems that at least, in so far as the Torah is concerned, mostly God is talking to people, to humans, um, and it's also right. And so it seems that it's the, and what makes humans different seems to be this image of God thing, not what we might say. Although you could say that the image of God extends farther, it doesn't at least make it obvious that there's, there's what's important is some kind of cognitive difference or different than what we're made up of, but a difference of, of physical appearance. Where does it say that man is an animal? That man is an animal? Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't think animals is a, 
um, category at all in this text. Um, animals is my category, but for, for this text, the categories are man, the living things that creep on the earth, the ones in the sky, and the ones in the sea. Um, so um, I, think, I think we'll get there, and we'll see how, in, from, other, from other places in the source, what the relationship between humans and animals is. Um, okay, can someone read, read the next source? Sam, do you want to read it? Sure. Uh, and this, just to contextualize, is from after the flood story. Um, we're going to go back and read earlier the flood story. Um, but before that, um, but just to, this is after the flood's already over. And this is God's blessing to Noah as the peace horse relates it. Yeah. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fertile and increase and fill the earth. The fear and the dread of you shall be upon all the beasts of the earth and upon all the birds of the sky, everything with which the earth is astir, and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given to your hand. Every creature that lives shall be yours to eat, as with the green grasses I give you all these. You must not, however, eat flesh with its lifeblood in it. But for your own lifeblood I will require a reckoning. I will require it of every beast. Of man, too, will I require a reckoning for human life. Of every man for that of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in his image should God make man. Be fertile, then, and increase abound on the earth and increase on it. And God said to Noah and his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and your offspring to come. Yeah, great. Um, what are we getting out of this source? To some extent, uh, uh, animals are, um, are moral beings because they are responsible for, right. they being held responsible uh, on the plane of equivalent with humans with the shedding of human blood. Great, right? So animals can commit moral wrongs and they can be held accountable for that. I think that's absolutely right as a reading of the source. It seems a little incompatible with the reading of the previous one because you, like, depends how you read the, like, you can't eat the, the blood, but, but it does seem like you can eat animals. Yeah, you, it, I mean, 100%, right? It says, that, it says that you can eat animals. So I think one question is, what do you make of this? Right, I mean, and this, it, I mean, I think if you see it as one continuous narrative, which I think is the right way to read it, it's saying that at creation, people could eat animals, were not permitted to eat animals, and here, and here they are permitted to eat animals. Um, what do we make of that? I mean, it seems now that there's some penalty for the death, right? That, like, that there's uh, a reckoning. Well, well say, say more about that. Uh, well, so... Right, that like uh, you can't eat flesh with life blood in it, but if, you, if there is life blood, I'll, if they're taking life blood, I'll require a reckoning, and it's also required to be, like, that sort of seems to me like there's a price to pay, as it were, for not charging it correctly. Yeah, no, I think so. I think absolutely, right? So it seems like this, first of all, this text has two ways of, um, in which you could eat animals, right? You could eat animals with blood or without blood. Um, and if you eat animals, um, and eating animals, if you don't eat the blood, that is acceptable completely, and there is no, no punishment for that, whereas it seems that eating animals with their blood is this grave sin. So, yes, go ahead, Tom. It seems like there's the, 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 so this is a covenant, and part of the covenant is that we get to eat animals now. Okay. Because if there's a change, that, that's why there would be the change. Is, is, is this covenant? And, and why... Why have this be one of the terms of the covenant? 
there's definitely a darkening of the relationship right, between humans and animals. Before were the masters, and now the fear and dread of you shall be upon the little beasts. And we're talking about animals killing people. Right? That, that's one of the things mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and vice versa. So there's this potentially violent relationship between humans and animals, and there's law policing it on both ends. Right? Animals are moral beings. They have certain laws that they're supposed to respect, and if not, they'll be revenge. It also seems like even the relationships between humans is potentially fraught, and there's this possibility of, of killing. Um, and that similarly, the law is policing, policing that. Right? Um, and so... It seems like um, the other thing just to point out is that some of the key words of this source are are nefesh, which is yourself or your life, and and dom and blood. And and one point here seems to be that if the image of God is what makes people different, humans and animals have life, and they have blood, which the source associates with life. And... um, and that is how, and this source has kind of narrowed the moral problem with killing, at least insofar as animals, to the problem of, of taking blood, taking life. So there's almost, I don't think this is exactly what the source is getting at, but there's almost kind of a legal fiction that you're able to eat the animal as long as you don't, don't eat its life. Um, and also there's a sense that, all, that this is something humans and animals have in common, and this is what makes it possible for animals to have morality, uh, and which makes it wrong to kill them at some level. I think that also here you have the vindication of morality. Uh, and so this is legislation because the story of Cain and Hebel appears before this. And it was assumed, therefore, that there was morality before this was legislated. Right. So here, right, so in the Cain and Abel story, which I think is actually not this source in the Torah, um, but there, there is no explicit legislation, and here absolutely there is, and maybe that comes out of the fact that in this source as well, there's a sense that there is you know, killing happening before the flood story, and you need some kind of law to relate to these problems. So we're going to actually move to the beginning of the flood story, um, and here, um, here I'm going to actually ask us to read both this source, the priestly source, and then the other version of the flood story that the Torah has, which comes from Jay, and then compare them to get a sense of what's different and how the source is in particular thinking about animals. Um, would someone, would someone read, read the first source on the top of page two? When God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its ways on earth, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy them with the earth. Thanks. Um, and can, can someone read the other source? The Lord saw how great was man's wickedness on earth, and how every plan devised by his mind was nothing but evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and his heart was saddened. The Lord said, I will blot out from the earth the men whom I created, men together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky, who I regret that I made them. All right, so just to clarify, the first source, Genesis 6, 12, and 13, is from P's story, the story that coheres in its ideas and theology with the other sources that we've been reading. And the second source is J. It's a different source, source that uses 
God's name um, even in Genesis um, and has competing different ideas. Um, What do we notice as being different about these sources? The first one's about all animals, it's just everything's bad. And then the second one is all about people and the animals just seem caught up as collateral damage in the flood. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. right. So here we have another key term that's connecting humans and animals, which is basar, flesh. And presumably all flesh means all life, humans and animals. Um, whereas um, in, in J, um, that's not the case. In J, what has only humans have done wrong. And um, as Jason's saying, um, there is um, humans are in some way responsible for the fate of for the fate of the animals, um, but there's no inkling that the animals have done anything wrong that they've sinned. Um, and how does that cohere with stuff that stuff that we've seen before? Um, the idea, I guess, in, in P that there is a single category in some sense that's implied by Nefesh. Mm-hmm. Right. So first of all, right that. I think it, that there is this single category that every that basar and nefesh and dam are all these things that humans and animals have in common, um, and so I think maybe just building off what Avi's saying a little bit. One piece is I think it's hard for P to imagine that this life that God would callously take this life when the animals haven't done anything wrong, um, because the animals are themselves of great value, their lives matter, and just sort of wiping them off as collateral, collateral damage is maybe, maybe not comfortable for, for this source. And there's also the idea that we decide well, later on that, that animals can in fact are moral actors and can, and can sense. Yeah, and, that, and right, exactly. And that's the other thing that comes out of this text is again you see the idea that animals are moral actors. It is possible for animals to sin, right? which I think is, is pretty counterintuitive for us in America. I think hardly anyone thinks that an animal can do something morally wrong. Um, and I think, I don't know that the J source thinks that, but this source does think that. And so the idea that an animal could sin and be punished, as it's not can be punished by God for killing humans, then it can be punished by the flood. Is there anything today in the, the circumstance that the fish are literally left, left off the hook? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe that's a problem for this source, is that the, is that the fish survive and there's nothing that suggests that the fish are fish are innocent. That they seem to maybe just be getting away with it. I don't. I don't know. I don't know if other people have thought that. I don't have a good answer to that. You can hear see. Right. I mean, you could you could see a lady or a commentator having come along and say, "Well, no, the fish were innocent, but well, the other animals earth. were guilty." The animals on the earth. On the right? earth. That's the problem. God. I think God could have devised another means of destruction that would encompass the fish as well. Yeah. For sure. Um, yeah, so I don't, so I don't, I don't know. That's a good question, and I don't know what the author of this source or the school that produced this source source would say about that. Um, but yeah, it's an excellent point. Um, so next next source we'll go through. Um, Just another point about the fish. They're morally, they're kind of at a lower level. In other words, we don't check the fish because kill it in any way because of the way they treat each other. Yeah, so so I don't actually actually know what why why that's the case. Like it could be what you're saying. Um, it could be that they have some kind of lo- lower moral status. Um, I haven't 
necessarily found any, anything to indicate that from, from the other two sources where they seem to be included in this category of flesh, but it's definitely possible. Um, so moving on to the next source, which is the version of the law of the Sabbath in the, in the Ten Commandments. And here I'm not 100% sure that this is the um, priestly source, and I think meaning scholars aren't 100% sure, um, but I think there's some reason to think that it is because um, it's the version of the command of the Sabbath that tells the creation story, um, not here in this verse, but in, um, in the next verse. Um, um, and so there's at least, and there's some reason to think that the entire sort of seven-day structure is a priestly idea, so I think we can at least entertain the possibility that it's part of the same structure of ideas as the other, the other texts. Um, someone, someone read, read this one. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day the Sabbath of the Lord your God, you shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. Great. Um, and what and what do we have here? Meaning specifically with regard to animals and where they fit. It's like saying that it matters whether the animal works. And it matters more than matters. whether some people work. And it matters more than whether some people work, or at least they seem to appear earlier on the list. After most people, but not, not after all people. Yeah. And Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. And that very problem perhaps points to one possible solution, which is that this is a household prohibition. Your household has to rest. So anyone who is a member of your household must rest, and the stranger who is in your gaze, who perhaps is less part of your household, also has to rest. Right. I mean, you could, so, yeah, so I think it's structured as a household prohibition. I think you could also say that it's not just a household prohibition, but there's a sense that this is the order in which people might matter to you. I mean, I'm not 100% sure that that's true. When you see people's veterinary bills versus their giving to the poor, sometimes this is reflected in that. Right, so that's the other thing, right, that I think makes a lot of sense to, to say about this source, is that, right, that there's actually something that's deeply more moral intuitive, morally intuitive about this that I think we struggle against a lot and we don't always admit, right, which is that people's moral concerns tends to go naturally often to people who are closest to them and that the farther away you are, the more you seem different, the less that, the less that people care. And, and in our world, um, we don't actually have that many animals that are part of our household that we think of as part of our families. Um, and to the extent that we do, it's often like your dog. Um, and that people seem to, and if you look at how people feel about their dogs, they feel m often much more strongly about their dogs than they do about other people, like Jason saying, and much more strongly about their dogs than they feel about any other animal anywhere in the world. Um, and that I think the source isn't critical of that. The source is just sort of I think embracing that, that that's, that's the way it is and that's the way sort of moral sympathy works. Um, to, to whom is this addressed? There's a, a question that's uh, hidden in the English but uh, merges in the Hebrew because it's uh, in, in English it's addressed to you which would be male or female but in the Hebrew it's, it's a top. So what, what about uh, uh, the, the 
Um, yeah, so what do you think? Well, I Yeah, so it, it is striking that, um, right, that here, on the one hand, it is male in the address. On the other hand, right, your wife is not one of the people who, who's listed here, here in this list. Um, do, does that, do other people have thoughts on this? Because I think that's an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, I would think that it's being addressed to anyone who's in a position of authority to have somebody else do work for you. So it gets you your son, your daughter, uh, Slaves can harness the cattle to work for you, and I guess it also means that you can get someone who's less well off than you because he's a stranger to do labor for you. And the answer is no. So I don't think I don't think it's addressing male or female, but clearly if the woman of the house has authority to get somebody to work for you, it's, it's, it's more about having the ability to make somebody else. You, you can't work, but you also can't get somebody else. Right. So I think that, so I think that's also an excellent point, and I think it also leads to one of the dynamics that um, that I, I want to get to here, right? Which is that um, I think one reason that we have that we have a human animal divide, or one way in which often people think about the human animal divide, is we think about humans as entirely, at least ideally, supposed to be entirely free and autonomous, and we think of animals as having certain rights, but as essentially property. Um, and, um, and I think that that's a good thing about our world um, in a lot of ways. Um, but I think, I think that's a little bit foreign to the Torah. And here you see the sense that you know, there's a famous book about status of women in rabbinic literature called Chattel or Person. Right? And in some ways, that's a bad question for the Torah, whether someone is a chattel or a person, whether your property or whether you are this kind of important being. I think for the Torah, most things that are most important beings are also in some sense owned, and that includes for the male subject of male Israelite, uh, male free Israelite, his wife, his children, who at least in sort of early text, there's a sense of like ultimate authority to put your children to death if you want to, with no one questioning it. And then also the sense that you will own slaves and you will own animals. The fact that you own them and that they are property, meaning that the law will recognize them in some sense as owned, doesn't mean that they're not also important and this legislation is at some level for, for their benefit. Can I ask yeah. a question? So do you read this text as, what's the chattel subject balance here? That is, you're keeping Shabbat, and therefore, everything that's yours also has to keep Shabbat. Or do you think that the mention of each individual child, servant, also implies that they, in and of themselves, have some obligation? Is, is my question clear? Yeah. Um, so I think you could read it either way. Um, I think the, I think here, for me, 
I don't read it as addressing them, right? I read the, who it's addressing is it's addressing the person who's in a position to make a decision about whether or not these people are working, these people in the biblical sense, people and animals. And the sense is that, right, that it's, the law is for their benefit, but they're not who the law is being, being addressed to, I think. Yeah. I mean, I would be curious to go through the rest of the sources before then trying to, uh, to, to analyze them with, with the, with the more sort of data points, if, if, we're, if we were trying to. Yeah, okay. we're trying. I mean, the logic of this conversation that we've been having, if this is indeed from the peace source, you know, animals can uh, sin, animals were punished by the flood, you know, now we have this, this Sabbath, uh, and animals are instructed to keep the Sabbath. I think that, that does suggest that it is, there's an obligation on each of these uh, entities. Yeah, it's totally fair. And there's certainly nothing, I think, in their capacity that makes it impossible for them to have be commanded to do something, right, once, once they're moral agents. Right, they, they, there's no question of capacity or, or worth in that sense. It's just a question of, I think, whose legislation to, threat, to direct it at. Um, yeah, so let, let, let's, let's, try, let's try and do at least a little more before, before we run out of time. Um, and so let's do, do the next source at the top of, at the top of page three. Um, did someone read that? And if any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who reside among them partakes of any blood, I will set my face against the person who partakes of the blood, and I will cut him off from among his kin. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have assigned it to you for making expiation for your lives upon the altar. It is the blood as life that affects expiation. Right, and this word for expiation is from the from the root kafar, right, which is related to kofar, which is which is a, a ransom. Um, like, for example, in the biblical prohibition that you're not supposed to take a kofar, a ransom, um, for a person who's killed someone. Um, the family's not supposed to, of the victim isn't supposed to accept money. Instead, that person has to, has to be put to death. Um, and so, and it is also like, like Kippur, like expiation, but there's also a sense of some kind of exchange going on, I think, in this route, at least possibly, not to overly push a particular interpretation here, but I think it's necessary to maybe understand what's going on. Thoughts on, thoughts on this source? So what if the blood belongs to God, so therefore you can't consume it? Yeah, where, where are you getting? The blood belongs to God? Where are you, where are you getting? Animals, right, like being the animal, the animal blood. But I mean, where are you getting it textually? Um, now I've assigned it to you. Yeah, it's been assigned. So the short answer is I'm not sure. Yeah, okay. It's been assigned for a specific purpose, which is to say to come back to God on the altar. Uh, to pay God for something that you have done. Right. Yeah, so I think that, that that intuition is right, right? So it's coming from verse 11, I think, right? And the I is really emphasized in this verse, right? You don't have to say, in biblical you don't have to say, like, I have given it to you, right? That's emphasizing the I. Um, and absolutely, that goes with this idea that the blood and the life and the animals, at some level, belong to God. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Is there a gender shift in, in this cluster? Scott's speaking about the 
uh, ish, but it uh, it ends with uh, female possessive. Where where are you getting the? Um, Right, so that's going to the word nefesh. Nefesh is, is, I think, mostly, if not entirely, feminine in Tanakh. And it's, and again, nefesh is this word that we've seen before in the P source when P is concerned with what life is and similarities between humans and animals. Um, and also, of course, which I didn't say earlier, is nefesh also has to do with, with the breathing activity. Famously, the in biblical scholarship, there's a cognate word in Ugaritic that means that means throat, right? Which is what what you're breathing from, um, and 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 it's feminine. Um, so it refers to nefesh, not Yeah, yeah, it refers to nefesh, right? Because the nefesh of the animal is in its blood. Um, so right. So also just getting back to this point um, that animals at some level belong to God is that there is also, you can read it as, from in the Hebrew, though not in the English, um, that natati al I have placed it, can be read as I have placed it on the altar, right? Natan al um, what they what the English translation says is assigned to you um, for making expiation for your lives upon the altar, can also, is also the phrase used elsewhere to mean to actually make a sacrifice. Right, and again, going back to what Sam's saying, there's a sense of something being a little cyclical here. Yeah. The, the assigning is the same verb in uh, Genesis 9-3 when God has given, well, first the plants and then the animals as food. So it's like, they're uh-huh. giving this to you to do that way. So it's yeah. a modification. So, and so in Genesis 3, it's, it's given to you, and now it's being given for a particular it's purpose. Right. It's interesting just like where, where, why is blood important? Like uh, in the only hint that I get of like why was in that second source from Genesis, the the one from Genesis nine, where it seems to be maybe blood is important because human blood is really important, and like animal blood is sort of uh, uh, important by by proxy because people who spill because spilling of human blood is really important, and so you shouldn't spill animal blood. But like it doesn't come in for it's surprising me that it doesn't come in the creation component. Like, uh, you know, the, the verbs there are, are uh, yeah. yotzer and breath and nefesh, but there's no, like, I made you by creating your blood. It's not... Uh, yeah, so that, that's a good question. I think, I think one possible answer goes back to what someone was saying earlier, which is that there is this possibility of violence and breakdown of relations between animals and humans and humans and each other and, say, the, um, not the Cain and Abel story per se, but that kind of thing is also clearly in the mind of the priestly source. And that we are now in this world where it's possible to imagine sin and, and taking life, which is maybe forcing the source at some level to articulate what's valuable about life. I don't necessarily think that, that animal life is valuable by proxy, at least according to the way this, the, source, the source is theology. I think the point is that what, I mean, what's special about humans isn't that they have blood or life or flesh. What's special about humans is humans look like God. Um, it seems that, but it, rather, all life and all blood is important just because that's what it is, because it's life and blood, and it's important, I think. But blood is clearly not important simply as a proxy for life because you are allowed to eat the animals. You just can't do it with the blood. So the problem is not the killing of the animals. The problem is the something desecrating about it. I don't know. Yeah, so, so that's right. It's clearly, at some level, okay to eat the animals, but at some level it's not okay because Genesis never permitted it. 
until you, meaning the creation story didn't permit it. Right? So, which I think, and some people think, um, it means that it's sort of something that gets allowed um, later after the flood story, maybe as kind of, you could imagine different stories about it, as punishment for animal sinfulness, as an analogy to Jay's Garden of Eden story, breakdown of relations between humans and animals, or a recognition that there is human violence and you need to satisfy it in some way, and the way we're going to satisfy it is by allowing the killing of animals and eating of meat, but only up to a certain point. There you might be conflating what another post-flood story says is where God recognizes that humans, right, humans being is evil from its youth or something like that. But I don't think it's a total misreading to read that in here. Um, but here, I think the blood is linked explicitly to a sacrifice. Yeah. And since we know that the sacrifice is really essential for human sacrifice, I think there is a link between uh, the proxy between human blood and animal blood. Yeah, it's good. So that, that, that's actually great, because it's the next thing I wanted to get to, and now you've gone to it, right, is that right here, um, we have this, um, the other thing, right, is that animals work. They work as a ransom for human life. They work as a substitute for human life. And it seems that the logic of this passage is that God has created animals so you can sacrifice them, and you can sacrifice them as a ransom for your life when... Biblically, at least, right? You're not supposed to take, like, for murder, at least, you're not supposed to have any kind of ransom in terms of money because money and humans aren't commensurable. They can't be worth the same thing. But here, God is going to recognize that an animal's life is so fundamentally similar to yours that you can sacrifice it on the altar um, and that that will, in some way, redeem you for, for your sins, right? And that isn't... That's an idea that, and that I think is not necessarily an idea that's throughout the priestly source, but is only in this subsection of the priestly source, but elsewhere in the priestly source, right, which like, for example, the Yom Kippur ritual comes from, there's a not entirely different idea where they take the sins, they physically put them on the goat, right, in the same way as this source thinks that when a human has sinned, the sin is weighting them down, they can take it off, they can put it on the goat, because the goat is a moral agent, and they can send it off. Um... So, in some ways, right, it's, it's not just incidental that these animals are important and equivalent to humans. It's actually central to the logic of some of the central kind of priestly institutions of sacrifice, of expiation, that you need animals to do this. Um, and that we would get to the other part of this point that this logic also, of course, is a logic that makes sense in terms of human sacrifice. And there are plenty of biblical sources that will suggest that that's something that at least people had in their minds when they were thinking about this. But because of time constraints. We're not going to talk about that. Um, instead, I want to very briefly close with my summary of this Alice Monroe story, which I apologize, we're not going to read. We're not. Okay. So, the way I ended up thinking about this, um, and what occurred to me was that, um, that Avi and Rachel recommended that I read, um, read this short story, which is really an amazing short story. And like many Alice Munro short stories, there is no some that I'm going to summarize it, and that's terrible because it can't do justice to how good of a story it is. Um, but in this story, there's um, this um, young woman who's run away from her middle class home, and with this with this man, um, her name's Carla. Um, her 
her husband's name is Clark, who she's now married, and they live in this trailer, and they raise horses, and they have kind of, kind of a farm. Um, and they have this kind of, they have this extremely fraught relationship. Clark is um, prone to violent temper and violence, um, and also figuring prominently in the story is their goat, Flora, who really emerges as kind of, as person-like. And I think part of what I got out of the story is that, that going back to what Jason was saying earlier, we don't really have relationships with animals, most of us. Or if we do have relationships with animals, they're relationships with pets. But if you're an ancient Israelite and you um, li live in an agrarian society, animals are so normal. Um, you're encountering animals all the time. And to think of animals not only as, in some sense, persons or people, as having a distinct personality is not weird. Right? It's actually quite, quite normal, and you can see even from the way that Alice Monroe is just describing this farm that they're, they have this goat, and it's this special goat, um, and it, because it's, and you, and you have passages about kind of the evolution of the goat and how the goat felt when it was more, more grown up. So what happened in the course of this story is that Carla decides she's going to escape from her husband, um, and she's talking to her employer, um, who she sort of works as kind of a maid for, whose name is Mrs. Jamison, Sylvia Jamison, and the employer gives her money to run away. And she starts running away, and then she turns back, and she goes back to her husband, right? And this is also this very, it's not only this like agrarian society, but it's also this harsh patriarchal world where her husband has certain power over her that he wouldn't necessarily have by virtue of his violent temper and stuff in a more middle-class society, maybe, um, if she hadn't brought herself there. But she ends up coming back, and her husband goes out and confronts Mrs. Jameson about giving her the money to run away. After, and at that moment, the goat, which has been missing for most of the story, shows up. Um, and, what, and then the way the story develops, I will finish in just a minute or two. The way the story develops is that Carla, the female protagonist of the story, goes back to her husband. The husband says that everything's forgiven, um, and she's sort of shocked that he's so forgiving and kind and not angry. Um, and um, then um, she gets this letter from Mrs. Jameson about this sort of miraculous appearance of this goat as her husband was confronting Mrs. Jameson and how the goat appeared and everything seemed to be better. That's the third source here. And what we then find out is that the protagonist has never seen this goat again and did not know the goat ever showed up and that she strongly suspects that her husband has taken this goat and, and killed it. Um, right, and so the runaway is doubly the protagonist of the story who tried to run away from her husband and the goat which disappeared and is constantly referred to as runaway which is then, then we assume killed. And so um, I think this really, and I think those two, the two things that struck me in this story are that one, the goat is um, that they're in this agrarian world and the animals are people and there is this sense of sacrifice that it's possible for relations to be restored and normalized with her husband in this violent world um, by um, the goat serving as a substitute for her and at the same time it's very disturbing because there's the sense that but for the goat, it could have really, it could have really happened to her. And I do recommend reading the story. Um, and thank you all for coming and for your astute comments. Um.